a little background where we're going this morning. A couple weeks ago, well, let me tell you the title of the message. It's Exodus 14 Mulligan is the name of the message, and I'll explain that. A couple weeks ago, we had a sermon that was from Hebrews chapter 2, and it was dealing with, continuing to deal with the humanity of Christ and what was accomplished there in his humanity. And we looked back at Exodus chapter 14 as an illustration exposing the Hebrews passage. Now, I'll tell you, on a personal level, which I'll be personal with you from the pulpit, Hopefully, I have been. Hopefully, I'll continue to be. I didn't feel good about the delivery of the message myself. Just like you have things that you do over the course of the week, you may look back in retrospect and say, I didn't feel very good about that. I didn't feel very good about it. But that's not why we're doing this. Okay, I want to kill that, that shoot that elephant if there is, if there is that elephant. Here's what happened. What, what had happened was, that's the thing we say around our house, jokingly. It's not good grammar, but it's just funny. What had happened was, in our house, we use that term. What had happened was, Wednesday night, I teach third through sixth graders. And the Wednesday night after that Sunday morning, uh, I was teaching Exodus 30. And in these third through sixth graders, I'm telling you, there's some awesome, awesome kids in this class. And I enjoy these kids. I've gotten to know them over the last couple of years and enjoy teaching them. Teaching Exodus 30 that Wednesday night, <clears throat> and I sort of do a little recap every week to sort of climb us back or get us to climb back into our context. <clears throat> so we start with why the Israelites were in Egypt. We started back in the end of Genesis where there's famine and Joseph's family, with Joseph being the sort of the recon team, not exactly a great design, he's sold into slavery, he's beaten up, he goes off to Egypt, he finds a place of power over the course of time, and he ends up being the guy that in some ways is the savior for the family when the family moves to Egypt and they have some nourishment, they have a place to live, they move into an area of Egypt called Goshen. So we, we kind of climb into that story each week. So I'm kind of recapping there, okay? Tell me the story. Asking some questions, who wants to catch us up, what happened next? Well, they go into slavery, pretty uh, significant slavery, 400 to 430 years there in slavery. And during the, the period of time in, in Egypt, it didn't start out as slavery. It started out pretty good because they were Joseph's family, and Joseph was like a hero. So, but on into their time there, the, some of the pharaohs got to the point where they're like, who's Joseph? And they're seeing this people that are so prolific, like we could put these guys to work. And that's exactly what happened. They ended up being slaves. So we're kind of talking through that. And then we talk through the plagues. And then we talk through their deliverance out of Egypt. And then we got to Exodus 14. And I asked, there were probably eight kids in the room. We got to Exodus 14. And just having preached it the week prior, I thought, okay, we're going to kind of camp out here just for a moment and kind of do some little, uh, I want to hear some feedback from the kids who were there. And of the eight kids, I'm holding up five fingers, of, of the eight kids that were in there, <laughs> of the eight kids that were in there, five of them weren't there on Sunday for various good reasons. I mean, nobody was sleeping in, nobody had the lame excuse. I didn't like check their excuses or anything, but they made the point to say, oh, we were taking care of kids or we were out of town or, you know, for good legitimate reasons. Five of them weren't there. Now, what happened, what had happened was a couple days earlier, 
Scott emailed and I emailed and said, Scott basically said, y'all need to listen to that sermon. And I emailed the message about the swan beating the guy to death. Some of you get the email, you're like, oh, I didn't read that. I don't read any of your emails. Some of you may have read it and you remember the email I'm talking about where the dude's in a kayak and a swan beats him to death. And like, I can think of every way in the world to die. That's one way I would have never thought of. Swan beats the guy to death. I send that email out, basically encouraging people to go engage that message. And it's Wednesday night, five of the eight had not engaged it. Now, it's only Wednesday. I know what happens between Sunday and Wednesday because we are a family, Christy and I, and three kids, and it's busy. So the sky didn't fall for me when I thought, oh, it's Wednesday night, and they hadn't listened to that message yet. The sky didn't fall. Well, then I asked, okay, of the three that were there, you remember there's eight, five weren't there. Of the three that were there, I mean, sharp kids, all eight of them, very sharp kids. Of the three that were there, I asked, what do y'all remember about the sermon from Exodus 14? And it was like crickets. I mean, seriously, it was like crickets. And I'm talking third through sixth graders. I'm not talking about wee little babies. I'm talking third through sixth graders that you can have a conversation with. And third through sixth graders that I've been teaching for two years that are attentive and teachable and engaged. And they couldn't remember a thing from an hour (laughs) on a Sunday morning where they're just sitting and listening. Okay, the sky almost fell right there. It didn't, though. It just kind of was sagging. (laughs) Okay, Jeff Willingham's in there with me. He teaches with me. He's laughing over there because he saw this thing unfold. So then, here's where the sky fell. I said, okay. I kind of gave them a, a recap of the sermon from Exodus 14. I gave them a recap and said, okay, So how many of you think that if you're good enough, you'll go to heaven? Now, three of the eight kids in the room raised or nodded their, raised their hands or nodded their head. And that's where the sky fell for me. Now, I want you to know, these are sharp kids. And these are kids that are in families that we have been dining on the word together, some of them, for years The sky didn't fall in the sense that I thought, oh, these families have dropped the ball and they no longer love Jesus. (laughs) It didn't fall in that way. It fell in a way where I realized that we could come and go Sunday after Sunday and that something that I see in some of you who may come for the first few Sundays, this real attentiveness, that can fade. Or some of you who've been in church your whole life, You can come to Sunday morning gatherings and you can just kind of come and it just kind of comes and goes and it may never actually connect. And I'm not talking about people that don't love Jesus either. (laughs) The sky fell in a way for me that I realized that we could make potentially some assumptions about what connects on Sunday morning that may never connect that may connect for some of the elders who we've met in people's homes where we have a 30-minute conversation with a family in their home where we see it light go on and see some connections made that we've been preaching about for years and we're like, wow, what are we even doing on Sunday morning? If a family can come and go, but when we sit with that family, we know that family loves Jesus. 
It's not a matter of a love for Jesus. I think it's a matter of routine. Things become routine, and we just sort of sit, and we occupy the time and the space, and we try and keep our kid from being too noisy, and we try not to fall asleep where Ben doesn't see us. And then it's Monday. So I said, man, that's weird. I, I feel like we ought to have a mulligan just on Exodus 14. But even then, I didn't say we're going to do that. I wanted to bounce it off the elders, so I emailed the elders, asked them to pray about it and to get back with me, and they said, man, let's do it. So here's where we're landing. The reason we're going back to Exodus 14, we're not even going to touch Hebrews because looking at it through Hebrews might be a little bit more complex than we want to go this morning. I want your third through sixth grader to get it this morning. I want them, if they're asked next week, Some of you will never bring your kid back to Wednesday night Bible study knowing that I'm there. Hey, wait a minute. But if they're asked where they can can recall, well, what did God do there? What was the point? So on purpose this morning, and even younger than third through sixth graders, because I know this morning we have our kindergartners and pre-K in here with us. My hope is that even they can get something out of this time. But my big picture hope is that uh, young people, adults, everybody walk away with an understanding of the gospel. It's funny to me that the thing that's so obvious to us is often so obscure and so difficult to articulate. So it's going to go as basic and as simple as it possibly can in these next few minutes. In some ways, I'm going to preach in these next few minutes like I teach third through sixth graders, minus the questions, and maybe even with the funny noises. I don't know. I might do all of it. I really don't care what a fool I make of myself in these next few minutes because I want you to get this. So let's turn to Exodus 14. I'm going to give you a little bit of background, just like I did with my third through sixth graders. Because it's necessary to figure out where we are in time and space in this story. The book of Genesis, and you know, you need to know too that the headings in your Bible, those aren't inspired scripture, the little sections, but they are handy. So we're going to use those as sort of a little escort to get us into the context expeditiously so we can really climb in to the story of Exodus 14. Genesis ends with Joseph and his family in Egypt. Turns out they didn't starve. Turns out God was watching over them. Turns out God is going to be faithful and follow through on his promise to them. So in time of famine in Canaan, God through an unlikely way, that's going to be a theme this morning, through an unlikely design, one of the brothers being sort of a little punk, and getting beaten up and sold into slavery through an unlikely way is going to save the family. And the family ends up in Egypt with food, nourishment, and life. They live in a little section of Egypt called Goshen. It's kind of their own little area. And we pick up in Exodus chapter 1. Israel increases greatly in Egypt is the heading right at the beginning of chapter 1 for me. It's a good way to summarize it. These guys were quite prolific. They were many over a very short period of time. 
The next heading, Pharaoh oppresses Israel. Now, the first couple of Pharaohs, they remembered who Joseph was. And like Joseph, is, he's, he's greatness. So we like the Israelites and, and you know, Joseph's family. So they're sort of like um, VIPs. But the Pharaohs, after a while, sort of forgot, well, who's Joseph? And these guys are so prolific, we could put them to work and really do some amazing things. We can have them make bricks and pyramids and stuff like that, I guess. So the first, or the first Pharaoh treats him well. The later Pharaohs, some point, put them to work as slaves. And then Moses is born, okay? Moses then in chapter 3, God speaks to Moses through a burning bush, unlikely medium for communication. He's out tending to the sheep, and he looks over, and a bush is burning, and God speaks to him and tells him to go back. I want you to lead my people out of Egypt. So Moses does so. He goes back to, to uh, Egypt there in chapter 4. Chapter 5, just sort of a development of where the Israelites are. They, uh, their slavery is pretty bad by this point. They're being told to make bricks without straw, which apparently is, is pretty brutal. And then in chapter 6, God gives them sort of an insight of what he's up to. In chapter 6, verse 2, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Specifically, that word Lord there in the original Hebrew is Yahweh. It's like his name. He's sort of dropping handles with Israel right here. Before this time, Israel didn't know him as Yahweh. They knew him as Elohim or some other name, but they didn't. They weren't on a first name basis with him. But now he's telling Moses, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I wasn't on a first name basis with them. I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan. Remember that place where your forefathers almost starved to death? Yeah, that's the place. The land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. We're talking 400 years. 400 years the Israelites are in slavery in Egypt. And God says, I've remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am Yahweh your God, who's brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. It's an important passage right here. God explains to Moses and to the Israelites via Moses, here's who I am, and here's what I'm doing. Here's why I let you become slaves in Egypt. And this is going to be the explanation for what you're going to see unfold. Chapter 7, Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh, and then the first plague, water turns to blood. The next plague, frogs. The third, gnats. The fourth, flies. The fifth, 
livestock die. The sixth, boils. The seventh, hail, big hail, like livestock crushing hail. The eighth, locusts. The ninth, a darkness that could be felt. And I don't know how in the world that works. I thought about that a number of times, like their candles didn't work or something, or their lamps didn't work, whatever. They had light in Goshen, but Egypt did not have light. And then the final plague, the Passover, where the firstborn of Egypt died in their beds that night, and God delivers them from Egypt. Then we pick up at the end of chapter 13. Okay, the Israelites are leaving Egypt at this point. By this point, they've been told also, ask your taskmasters, ask those who put you into slavery to give you all their loot, gold, silver, flocks. Ask them to give you all, your, all their stuff, and guess what? They're going to give it to you. And then at midnight, whenever I call you out of Egypt and I pass over Egypt and take their firstborn, I'm going to call you out and you're going to leave with their goods. And here we pick up in chapter 13, verse 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they may travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Okay, God's with this nation as they leave 400 years of slavery. Now, let me just tell you, is this going to be a kind of a little snippet of something that we're going to look at later? This is your story. You may not realize it. You may think we're thinking about, we're talking about some obscure, ancient Israelite people, but I want you to know, and what I'm going to show you this morning is this is your story. This is your story. Slavery, Egypt, brick-making, Deliverance, hopelessness, deliverance, that you may know that he is the Lord. This is the gospel. Now we pick up in chapter 14. The Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-ha-hiroth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they're wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I, this is God speaking, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am, in the, I am the Lord, and they did so. Now, you have to just think for a moment what it was like for Moses. Moses must have thought, okay, let me get this right. You spoke to me from a burning bush. You told me to lead your people out of Egypt. And all the while, you hardened the man's heart that would give him permission to do so so that he wouldn't do so. And then in doing that, you pummeled him with these mighty acts of judgment called the plagues, and then the worst of them being the Passover, and then we're led out of Egypt. And I'm thinking, God, we know that you're the Lord. I think we got it. We saw hail falling the size of VW bugs. We saw a darkness. Not even a Bic lighter worked in Egypt. I don't know why. It's weird. 
We saw these things that we couldn't explain. And I think we know that you're the Lord, but God seems to want to show them even further how specifically he is the Lord. So he has them camp in front of the Red Sea. And he says, you know what? I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart one more time. And he's going to come after you. Here's how it's going to go down. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what were we thinking? They didn't say that. They didn't say it like that either, probably. But this is kind of, this is, that's my version of what they say next. What is this that we have done? That we have let Israel go from serving us. Man, they were great slaves, and there were so many of them. And they were so easy to keep beat down. I mean, they never tried to push back. They were easy. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pihahiroth in front of Baal Zephon. And when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. Just for a moment, try and be an Israelite and think, what in the world? We saw the mighty acts of judgment. We heard Egypt cry at midnight when they found the firstborn dead in every home. We saw them give, give us all their loot. We left with bags full of it thinking, man, we're scot-free. And then here are the Egyptians marching after them. And they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Sound like babies, but I would probably sound the same way. Moses, man, we're done for. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? No, they didn't say this, but... This is funny. Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians and keep making bricks and keep getting beat up and slap around like a bunch of slaves. Didn't we say, leave us alone, Moses. Don't lead us into freedom. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now, let me acquaint you with some imagery here. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. They think about where they are. They've got the Red Sea to their back. They've got an approaching army to their front. He has them camped where they can see the army coming at them. And where they have the ocean or the Red Sea, not an ocean necessarily, but the Red Sea might as well be an ocean, to their back. Now, Listen to this passage, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, you're probably thinking, what in the world does that have to do with this? 
I want to equate you with the ancient notion of what big bodies of water were. The ancient mindset about seas and oceans were that they were the embodiment of evil and chaos. That's what kept people homebound or groundbound for so long for fear of dropping off the edge of some sea or for the fear of some crazy monster coming out and eating their ship and eating them. The ancient mindset about bodies of water was that this place, these things are evil and wicked and chaotic, and it comes from the very beginning, uncreated. Look at the passage again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness is over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. He hasn't spoken, let there be light yet. And there's this uncreated chaos everywhere. And the Spirit's hovering over the face of the deep. The thing I want you to see right off the bat is realize that what is behind them is the picture of evil, uncreated chaos. There's a body of water behind them that they can do nothing about, even if Michael Phelps is with them. Even if somebody could somehow put together a boat, it wouldn't be fast enough, and it wouldn't go far enough. They have chaotic uncreation behind them, and they have an angry, hard-hearted army in front of them. Some of you who've studied history, likely at some point, I guess it depends on what kind of history you study, studied the Celtics, the warriors, the Celtic warriors. These guys were bad to the bone. I remember studying them years ago and found that there were even one group of Celtics that fought naked. I'm just going to say that army's just going to win if they come. I'm just not going to fight. You win. These guys, but they were that wholehearted in the way they fought. And they would sometimes light their hair on fire as they went into combat. Naked with your hair on fire, you win. I'm running for my life. I'm trying to envision what it must have been like for the Egyptian army to bear down, hard-hearted Egyptian army to bear down on Israel, and I'm thinking it must have been something like the Celtic hordes. I bet they were mad. The firstborn in every home is dead. Their livestock is dead. They're still picking frogs out of their beds, gnats, flies out of their teeth. They're mad. I bet there's a cloud of dust coming this, around this army as they press in on them with the Red Sea to their back. I bet you can hear the hoofbeats of the horses and the chariots. I can't imagine that I wouldn't have been scared too as I'm thinking about uncreated chaos behind me and an angry, hard-hearted army in front of me. I'm thinking about Israel. They must have been thinking, one of my favorite movies, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Where they're saying, we're in a tight spot. I mean, George Clooney is saying over and over again, we're in a tight spot. Man, we're in a tight spot. I mean, I bet they're thinking, we are seriously in a pickle. There's nothing we can do. We can't get across uncreated evil chaos behind us. And we, we left with bags of gold and silver 
and sheep. Scott pointed out as we were talking this week, he said, you know, they didn't leave with their swords and their weapons. You know, God could have told them, okay, when you leave Egypt, take their swords and their spears and their muskets and their machine guns, take all that stuff because you're going to need it. He didn't tell them to take any of that stuff. Take gold, silver, livestock, because it seems like he's going to create in them the dependence on him to fight their battles for them. So here they are seriously in a tight spot. They are in the proverbial pickle, completely and absolutely defenseless. Now, keep your finger in Exodus 14 and turn over to Exodus, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 2. <clears throat> here's where things, here's where you're going to begin to realize, hopefully, if you haven't realized already, that this story over here in Exodus chapter 14 is your story. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, is one of the most succinct sections of Scripture that explain the, the entire gospel that I know of. Ten verses, you can understand how the whole gospel unfolds. And really, in some ways, it's narrative for Exodus 14. Listen to this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. You were sitting on the shore of the Red Sea with uncreated chaos behind you and the army to destroy you bearing down on you. They have the weapons and you are defenseless. Paul says, he's speaking to Gentiles, and he says, listen, just so you know, it's not a Gentile problem. Here, let me show you, it's a Jew problem. Among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What Paul is saying here is he's saying all of mankind, Jew, Gentile, human being, is sitting on this figurative shore with the ocean to our back, our sea, uncreated sea to our back, and a hard-hearted army bearing down on us to our front. We all are by nature children of wrath. We are all in a seriously tight spot. Turn to Romans 1. Chapter 1 is really the human story. In verse 18, it sort of brings out the problem. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What I want you to see in this army that's bearing down on the Israelites is I want you to see that as a visual of God's wrath. If all you see there is Pharaoh and his army, then you miss out on the reality that God hardened their hearts. They could have been burying their firstborn. They could have been back home in wherever, Alexandria or wherever, licking their wounds. They'd just been pummeled. But God hardens their heart and he mobilizes them to go after the people that he just freed 
so that he could give us an illustration over the ages of what he's done for us in the gospel. Because the reality is all mankind sits on this seashore. All mankind is deserving of God's wrath. Why? Because we've all sinned. Turn over a couple pages to chapter 3. More description of the seashore. Verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. I mean, you could add other things. None can swim, no, not one. None can swim across the Red Sea, no, not one. None has a sword, no, not one. None has a machine gun, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, add us up, and we're worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. The mouth, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's just like a description of what it looks like on the seashore of the Red Sea. You got the army bearing down on you, like the Celtic hordes. You got uncreated chaos behind you. Just like the Israelites there, we are absolutely and completely defenseless before the white-hot holy wrath of a living God. Do you see that? Third through sixth graders. I'll say it again. Third through sixth graders. Lily Cardwell. <laughs> She's one of my students, so I can say that. Daniel McGraw. Do you see this? Luke McGraw. If you don't see it, I'm going to stand right here the rest of the morning until you see it. We have the white-hot wrath of a holy God bearing down on us. We have no hope. We can't swim fast enough. We can't swim far enough. And we can't even defend ourselves against the Celtic hordes. We're in a tight spot. That is the context for the gospel. Let me show you something. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This last week I heard uh, Johnny Erickson Tata speaking on this passage, and I thought, man, what a... What power that has coming from a quadriplegic. Listen to this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Excuse me, chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. I want to show you this is how God works. I want to show you that I'm not somehow crafting some sort of neato bandito design to explain the gospel. I want to show you this is God's way of working. Okay, listen. We do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction... We experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Paul's talking about his ministry, but that could be a narrative for how the, the Israelites are feeling on the seashore. It should be a narrative of how we're feeling apart from Christ. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. We're in a tight spot, we're done for. We have no hope and can't defend ourselves. But that, that affliction was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That affliction had purpose. 
That affliction had meaning, and it was to teach us to rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. I like what the psalmist says in Psalm 119. Don't turn there. Just listen. He said, it's good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. God has design and purpose in these sort of tight spots. And we all need to realize that we're in a terminal one apart from Christ. Now, turn to 1 Corinthians 10. I want to show you something else, why this is important, what we're doing here today. 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, a church that, man, these guys were a mess. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Okay, he's writing about something that happened 1,500 years earlier, the thing we're reading about in Exodus 14 today. Paul speaking to a bunch of Gentiles. Just in case you think that this is about some ancient Jews and not about you, climb into this and realize he's speaking to the, a church, a Corinthian church, a bunch of Gentiles, and he's calling them your fathers. They all passed under the cloud and passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, most of them, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Paul says, Corinthian church, and I'm saying Cross Point church, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. When you leave Exodus 14 over there as some ancient irrelevant story, you're going to be prone to the same evil that the Corinthians were prone to. You're going to miss those things happened and were recorded for our benefit so that we would understand our story. Real good reasons for us to climb into this story today and understand the character of God because we're bound for evil if we miss it. The reason I say this is right now, as we have the Celtic hordes bearing down on us, we have the cloud, we have their hair lit on fire. Now, obviously, I'm being um, descriptive there in a way that we can't know. We have a hard-hearted army bearing down on us. One to which we are defenseless, and we have uncreated chaos and evil behind us. We have no hope. We are literally and figuratively and spiritually and absolutely in a tight spot. And this point here that Paul's making in 1 Corinthians 10 is that we are to tremble with Israel. Sometimes when you hear things that illustrate other things, you think that the thing that illustrates it is more real than the thing it's illustrating. You need to understand the thing that this is illustrating, this Exodus 14 is illustrating, is not as real as what we're talking about today. Was it real? Yeah, it was a real Red Sea. It's a real army. But what we're talking about today, about being crossways with a white-hot holy God... That's ultimate reality. That's ultimate reality. So what I'm hoping you do right now is that you're thinking, man, apart from Jesus, I'm trembling, I'm quaking, I'm wondering with the rest of Israel, I'm grabbing the Israelite next to me, I'm grabbing the Israelite 
to the other side of me. I'm putting my arms around my Israelite little kids, and I'm saying, what are we to do? We're in a serious tight spot. We're supposed to do what they did, Paul says. We're supposed to tremble with them and grab the person next to you and grab the kids below you and say, what are we to do? If these things are recorded for our benefit, if they are there so we can climb into our story, what in the world are we to do? We're hemmed in. We're in a tight spot. Go back to Exodus 14. Picking up in verse 13, let's see what happens. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm. Anybody buying it? I mean, you got uncreated, chaotic ocean, sea behind you. You can't swim that far. You can't swim that fast. You got an army bearing down on you. You got no weapons, no hope. We are by nature children of wrath. No one's righteous, no, not one. The best you have is filthy rags. On your best day, you get up in the morning singing, humming, Lord, I lift your name on high. You get up and have a balanced breakfast. You take a vitamin. You might even listen to a sermon on the way to work. You share your lunch with somebody in Jesus' name. I'm just thinking about what your best day might look like. I bet it doesn't look like that. But on your best day, we're in a tight spot. On your best day, relative holiness, we're sitting on the shore with no answer, completely hemmed in. Let's see what happens. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation, the Yeshua of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Anybody predict that? I mean, we know the story, but really, let me just interject that. Could have anybody predicted that? Hold your stick of wood over that Red Sea, that uncreated chaos, and stand it up on the right and to the left and walk across. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So let's see how it goes down. These are just the instructions. So then the angel of God was going, who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel and there was the cloud and the darkness and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So these clouds that were leading them, cloud of fire or the cloud of smoke, move around between the approaching army and God's people. That's a great picture. The angel of the Lord moves there. 
And then Moses goes up to this body of water, stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. Not a mud hole. (laughs) Dry land. Crackling dry land. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic. Who's fighting the army here? The Lord's fighting the battle. Clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Right? The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots. That's another thing I would just never have thought of. And upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. As the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel, on the other hand, walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The thing I enjoy about God right here is that he makes a way out, and he makes a way out with one that you would never expect. Just seems to be the way he works. Have you ever thought about this reality? The way out for us is a poor carpenter's son from Nazareth. A donkey riding way out. A donkey's colt riding way out, mind you. A foot washing savior is the one that's going to be the one that's going to give us a way out? That sounds unlikely to me. A young man at that with no power other than what he says. He's got no money. He wasn't born into a rich family. He doesn't wear purple. He's what the world would call a pauper. Yet God uses the unlikely and the foolish things that confound the wise. An unlikely thing of water walled to the left and the right. He seems to prefer the unlikely. He provides a way that no one would have ever predicted. I was contrasting his way. We're going to talk about this more in a minute, but I was contrasting his way with our way. If we're going to climb into this story and say this is our problem, that God's holy wrath is bearing down on us, and we have uncreation, death, evil behind us, we have no way out, we're in a tight spot. Some of the things that we do, obviously, we like to build bridges. This is the normal human way. You need to know this. Every other religion of the world is based on building a bridge to get across. Building a bridge to get to God. That's why Christianity is so distinct. Because we like that itch being scratched with, I'm going to do some good works and know that I'm in. That's what I'm talking about in bridge building, is being a worker doing some good works to get across to God. That is the human conjured up version of religion. 
that would define and identify every single other religion other than Christianity. But the problem is we can't build a bridge because the sea is too big. We don't have any materials and we don't have time. We can't be good enough because no one's righteous. No, not one. That's one thing we do. The second thing we do is army ignoring. This would be the way that, that says, you know what? Let's just imagine that this white-hot holy God would just say, you know what, let's, let's just forget about it. Let's just play like it never happened. We'll just imagine, and if we imagine hard enough, we'll imagine that this army is not bearing down on us. I know it looks like the Celtics. I know I think I see a cloud of dust. I think I hear the hoofbeats. But let's just imagine that the God that we would, the God of our own making would just say, let's just forget about the fact that you've wronged me. Let's just forget about the fact that you are deserving of my wrath and eternal destruction. That white hot holiness is that holy and sin is that corrosive. Army ignoring. And the third thing would be positive thinking. As we're on that side, we have the sea to our back. We have the army bearing down on us. If we turn to the Israelite next to us and say, you know what? Israel, I mean, Egypt really wasn't that bad. (laughs) You know, I know it was slavery and all, (laughs) but it really wasn't that bad. I mean, we got to work with our hands, you know. We stayed pretty fit, you know, got a good tan outside all the time. We had those pots full of meat, you know, that they talked about. At least we had a place to be buried if we died. Israel's not, I mean, Egypt's not that bad. So that's what we do too in dealing with this problem of the army bearing down on us and chaotic uncreation behind us. We just imagine that it won't be so bad to stay there. But then God makes a way that we would never expect walls of water. What I want you to see here is I want you to see dark, chaotic, uncreation through God's design. And specifically, he says, Yeshua's work now has order. He speaks uncreation, chaos, into a wall on the right and the left. He takes the absolutely unlikely. He takes the evil, the uncreated, the mess, and he gives it order and structure, and he takes his people right through the middle of it. To me, it is an illustration that he takes the fool, not only that he takes the foolish things that found the wise, but that he works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Because some of you have been swimming in a sea of chaos, and you can't figure out why. You don't realize that you're not swimming if you're in Christ. You're being carried across and through it on dry ground because that's the way he works. He takes your mess and he gives it some order and he gives you a way through it. Man, I love that. He sorts it. He organizes it. He binds it to the left and to the right passage that came to mind in 1 Thessalonians, just listen to this passage, 
chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. For God has not destined us for wrath. He's not destined us to be destroyed on the sea shore of the Red Sea. He's not destined us to die in the Red Sea or to be destroyed by this army. But he's, he's not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, through Yeshua, who's going to make a way, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. He has made a way across through the work of Yeshua. Man, if you don't see that, if you're a third through sixth grader and you don't see that, then I just quit. (laughs) I don't quit. I'm not going to quit. But man, I... I dream of every person in this body getting that. I dream of every person in this body when they're asked, how's your salvation going? Which is sort of a weird question, but it's diagnostic. If somebody says, I don't know, it's going pretty good, you don't get it. Your salvation was fought for you. Your salvation was done for you through Yeshua. The answer should be, oh, man, my salvation is done. (laughs) Now, the responding can use some work. The responding needs continued grace as I respond to what he's done for me and carrying me across from darkness to light, from death to life. But when it comes to my salvation, he did the work, and all I had to do was stand still and watch it. Go back to Ephesians chapter 2. I want you to see this. Paul wanted the Ephesian church to see this, and I wonder if they didn't because the Ephesian church is one of the churches that got a letter in the book of Revelation. And one of the things that was characterized of the Ephesian church in the book of Revelation that was characteristic of them in the letter is that they left their first love. He said, you did a good job. I can't remember the details. The Nicolaitans or those who are doing, having false teaching, you did a good job guarding the truth, but you left your first love. And I wonder if the Ephesians forgot this. Listen to what unfolds. We stopped at verse 3. We're by nature children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, sitting on the shore of the Red Sea, with the hordes bearing down on us, with absolutely no way that we could make up, no bridge could be built, no boat could be made, no way across, he made us alive together with Yeshua. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show, like right now, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Yeshua. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. You didn't build a bridge. You didn't get on a boat. You didn't have a sword. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's where I want to stop. We're going to come back to that next verse in a minute. 
The thing I want you to see right here is I want you to see that he did the work. There are two words that come to mind for the Christian that doesn't get this. And the two words, they're not really, they're, they're really sort of, uh, they're probably not the best words, but they're just the words that come to mind for a Christian who doesn't get that Christ did this work. The first word is grotesque. And the second word is atrocious. The Christian that thinks that they have somehow contributed to getting across from death to life, from darkness to light, is grotesque. Here's what that Christian looks like. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Jesus told this parable to some that thought they built a bridge. He told this parable to some that thought, I can fend off that army. And they treated others with contempt. That's what goes with this grotesque Christian. They treat others with contempt. If you think you got across from death to life, that's a byproduct. You're going to treat others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I am Superman. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me a sinner. The hordes are bearing down on me and I've got uncreated chaos behind me. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, this man that wants to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The point that we need to see in this little story here about stand still and watch the Yeshua of the Lord is that when it comes to your salvation, that you have to know that in regards to in reality, he did all the work. You just stood still. If you don't think that and you think you've somehow contributed to your salvation... Man, you're just like that Pharisee right there, and you leave unforgiven. You're just like that Pharisee right there. You treat others with contempt, and you're grotesque and atrocious and ugly. My hope and prayer would be that every person that we talk to in this body between Sundays, if an elder or a deacon or sees each other or sees a family, says, hey, man, how you doing? Like, yeah, I'm doing pretty good. Say, uh, um, did, did you participate in your salvation at all? And I say, no, what? You know what? Christ is my righteousness. It just spills out of you. Christ is my righteousness. No, Yeshua fought the battle. Yeshua took the whole army and turned them in a disarray where they're bumbling all over themselves. And then Yeshua drowned them. Not me. And you know what? I couldn't even swim. <laughs> and Yeshua made a cross, a way across I would have never thought of. An unlikely way. A cross? 
It's an unlikely way, but that's the way he used. The person that doesn't get that is grotesque. Now, let me tell you, though, second part of the story. You need to know back in Exodus, after Exodus 14, just a few chapters later, the next high water mark is Exodus chapter 19. If you know the story of Exodus, you know what happens at Exodus chapter 19. He leads a people to Sinai. And here's what he says to them there. Exodus chapter 19, verse 3. And let me tell you why I'm going here. Because sometimes when this gospel story is shared, only part of it's shared. Only part of it's shared, and then a bunch of people could potentially leave saying, man, yeah, that is grotesque. Those people that think that they contributed to their salvation, yeah, I hate those people too. But for me, man, it's all, you know, it's just grace, you know. It's all good. I do what I want because he fought the battle. That's why I'm going to this second part, because it's all part of the story. Sinai happened next, and listen to what he says in chapter 19. While Moses goes up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Right? You walked across on dry ground. You heard the hordes bearing down on you. You had evil, uncreated chaos behind you. You grabbed the Israelite to your left and your right. You grabbed your little Israelite children, and together you said, we're in a tight spot. And you remember how I bore you on eagle's wings and took you through that, and I brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. Basically, he's saying, I saved you, and all you had to do was stand and watch. Now, obey me. The Christian that thinks that they somehow participate in their salvation is grotesque. And equally grotesque, is someone who says, I participated in his salvation because he did the work, but they're not obeying. It's equally grotesque. So any of you that thought, man, I sure hate those guys that they think that they participated in their work somehow, and you can just tell they think they're all that. Sometimes that statement comes from people that just want to live however they want to live and call Christ their Lord. And they forget that Sinai came next. Salvation, then obedience. I'm going to save you. You just stand still and watch. And when I save you, then you go obey me. I told you I was going to come back to Ephesians chapter 2, that last verse. I'll share it with you because most of you probably aren't there. He says, man, you are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy, made you alive together with Christ. He seats you in heavenly places. You've been saved by grace through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Nobody can build a bridge. And then he says in verse 10, 
For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I don't want to share a gospel that doesn't involve obedience. And I don't want to share a gospel that doesn't involve standing still watching Yeshua grace. That's the whole story. They go together. Now, what I want you to see this morning as I try and kind of give you a direction on this is I want you to see that this fight on the shore of the Red Sea, this fight on the shore of our heart has got to influence all others. It's got to impact every other fight. Really, in many ways, it informs every other fight. This fight that took place on the Sea of the Red Sea, this deliverance that took place through the Red Sea, this fight that took place on the shore of our heart, our deliverance through baptism into the people of God. The thing I want you to see is that that reality informs and sheds light on all other troubles. Every other trouble, insert it. Visual impairment, diabetes, early death, loss, suffering, job loss, pain, divorce. Stick problem in there. Massive problems. Relative this fight on the shore of the Red Sea, relative this fight on the shore of our hearts, it's ant bite. Now, I know some of you are saying, man, that's insensitive, and you don't know my problem. Let me take you to what Paul said. This should be familiar to you. It was preached here a few weeks ago. We have this treasure of the gospel in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is totally and completely legitimately at work in us but life in you. He goes on in verse 16 to say, so we don't lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction (laughs) coming from Paul, this slight momentary affliction? Seriously? Shipwrecked, beaten, imprisoned, starved, tortured, stoned. This light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are 
eternal. I cannot tell you how many conversations I have with people over the course of the week in counseling or just general life where things just look like, man, their world or my world, I feel this way sometimes too, my world is coming down and it's because I've lost sight of this battle fought on the shore of the Red Sea, fought on the shore of my heart. It makes every other thing a light and momentary affliction. I don't want to make little of your affliction because I know some of those afflictions firsthand because we've walked close enough together. And I know they hurt. I know they're painful. I know they're troubling. I know they're difficult. But I got to tell you, in regards to what Christ did for us, what Yeshua did for us, it's an ant bite. This reality has got to inform and shed light on every single one of these other realities. The conversation I have with people so often is, man, I've got the gospel, but I need help here. I've got the gospel, but I don't really, didn't shed any light on this issue. And I'm thinking, what? Hopefully, we have a line in the sand or an Ebenezer rock that we've placed here on Sunday the 29th that you can say, hey, bro, I love you and I want to take you back to Exodus chapter 14. This is a bad situation. It gives you a totally new set of eyes. It gives you an otherworldly perspective. It makes you salty and bright and aromatic in that mess, in that sickness, in that loss, in that disability, in that difficult marriage. It gives you a perspective that becomes a sweet aroma to all those around you. That shows up shiny and bright in that dark trial. Have we not established that's the way he works? Got to give you a new set of eyes where we never say, yeah, I've got that, but it's not helping me here. It's got to inform it or you don't get it. That's why the, the elders said, yeah, man, preach it again. <laughs> what do we got to lose? If there's anybody in here that says, oh, man, I already got this, you don't have it. It's a win-win deal. Because those of you who do have it, you're going, yeah, I needed to hear it again. And I'm, I can be reminded of it again tomorrow. And those of you who don't, who think you have it, I hope you heard it today, maybe for the first time. I hope you heard it today in a way that may be transformational for you. My hope and prayer today is that there's not a person in this body, third through sixth grader or even younger, that could say, yeah, I can be good enough to go to heaven, because you can. But that every single one of us in this body would say, Christ is my righteousness. And every single person in this body, eight-year-old, 80-year-old, would say, I want to respond in those good works prepared in advance for me to do. Responding, not earning. Responding with absolute, complete, and reckless obedience. That's the gospel. I thought, too, what it's like whenever we're in some of those trials and we're complaining, which I complain, too. I promise you I'm made of the same stuff you are. It's like somebody that won the lottery complaining about the price of gas. Like, man, you don't need to drive a Prius. Drive a, you got to go get you a Hummer. A fleet of them, man. Why are you worrying about the price of gas? You got all the money in the world. Man, when... When it comes to what Christ has done for us, we are rich. And there may be these periodic withdrawals, and I'm not making them small. 
But in contrast to how he's blessed us, man, they are light and momentary. I'm going to share a psalm in closing. I want you to listen to this psalm. I don't know when Psalm 66 was written. But the psalmist connected to the story in Exodus 14. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. There's a connection to the name, Yahweh. I dropped handles with you. We're first name basis. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. Who would have thunk it? There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You've tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. Here, slavery. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. Yeshua, yes, you did. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. What's being pictured right there is he's responding with worship. The Israelites did the same thing. I didn't finish reading the chapter. There's two verses left. Listen to them. They walk across on dry ground, crunch, crunch. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Graphic. Do you see it? Do you see the principalities being put to open shame? Do you see them disarmed? Do you see the strong man bound and his goods plundered? Graphic. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. They responded with worship. Man, that's the only appropriate response right there. Just worship. Psalm 66 there shows us he had a plan and a design. It was a plan that we would come to know him as the Lord. 
If you as a family or you as an adult or you as a kid miss that you're in a tight spot and that your only way out is Yeshua, then you've missed the good news. I don't know what you believed. You may have believed it your whole life. You may have been in church your whole life. If we did a poll of people in Greenville, which Scott and I did in some way, at least south of 30, I cannot tell you how many conversations we had with people that sounded a lot like I'm trusting in my efforts to save me. Coming from people that said that they had a relationship with the Lord because they had some sort of event. They were baptized as a kid or something. They had some sort of event. Something happened at camp or something happened in a church when they were growing up. But they missed it. If I never get the chance to preach another sermon, this is the one I'd want to die after. I hope nothing happens to me this week. I'm just saying, but I'd be okay if it came after this one. Because this is it, man. Some of you lived your whole life in church. But you don't have this. You don't have it. You have some pseudo-former bridge building. Our army ignoring... (laughs) It's all good all the time. Some weird stuff out there. If I go on to be with the Lord, this would be a good one to go after. I hope every parent in this room can talk through this with their kids, our grandkids, some of your grandparents. I hope every husband and wife in this room can talk through this with each other and get your hands around the truth that you can speak to things that you have believed mistakenly. And you can let this story and some of these passages we went to today show you really what the good news is because it'll make you sing. Just like the Israelites and Moses. It'll make you give offerings of your whole life just like the psalmist. Let me pray for you. God, I pray for this people. I pray for myself that we would never, ever, ever, ever lose sight of the realities that you so beautifully portrayed in Exodus 14. Lord, I pray that this reality that you've exposed here of our desperate condition combined with complete and absolute deliverance and then coupled with absolute abandoned inobedience will be something that will connect to every single family in this room and every single individual, every single grandparent, every single kid. Lord, I pray that this will give us a new set of eyes for these other momentary afflictions, that we too can call them momentary and light. Lord, that we can be salty and bright and aromatic because of what you've done, you've done for us on the shore of our heart. We thank Yeshua. We thank Yahweh for fighting this work for us. We pray that we can respond with abandoned obedience. 
where there's nothing off limits. We pray these things in Yeshua's name. Amen.